Hey, uh, this is the Reverend Russell. And this is the Reverend Debbie. And uh, we're sitting here in our office at the House of Mercy World Headquarters. And uh, we're just about to start the 5 p.m. Sunday service. So you're probably hearing this on the podcast. And um, you'll hear everything that's just uh, about to happen. And I'm pretty looking forward to it. Debbie, what are you preaching on here today? I'm preaching on Mark 10, 2 through 16, I think. Uh, it, it, I'm going to preach about hard hearts. Hard hearts, okay, yeah, because it was like heavy on the divorce and stuff. Right. Yeah, but... Uh, and I kind of think Jesus maybe doesn't care that much about that. Like it might be something, that might be, it might be about something a little bit more. Yeah, that's what yeah, I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. it was hard hearts, okay. Uh, that sounds great. There's going to be good music. Well, you'll hear it coming up. And uh, if you're not regularly getting a House of Mercy newsletter, just keep it in touch. You can go to our website, houseofmercy.org, and sign up, and you'll just know what's going on. Oh, you know, also as long as you're there, um, you can uh, give. Uh, click on the uh, Give button. Yeah. And uh, we really appreciate it. Um, so, hope you enjoy this week's House of Mercy Sunday podcast. oneself out of love is the most terrible deception. It is an eternal loss for which there is no reparation, either in time or eternity. That's Soren Kierkegaard from Fear and Trembling. Very good. Hey, thanks everybody for coming out. Uh, it's a beautiful fall day, and uh, it's a beautiful time to be in here at the House of Mercy. Uh, Listening to this band, you guys sound so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you do have a reputation as a spitter. I mean, I'm just, you know, so, yeah, that's good. That's kind of it. It's hard to believe that you weren't raised by a Baptist preacher. I mean, that's the, that's the classic Baptist preacher move right there. Everybody, let's just come a little closer. 
awkward Lutherans. Well, this is what fi- I find so <laughs> amazing about it. It comes so naturally to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, maybe it skipped a generation or something. That does that is that is known to happen. Um, well, uh, all righty. So Susie wasn't here to copy the bulletin or program as we call it today. So if you want to follow along, you know it's always in the hymnal. Yeah, it's printed right service. there at the yep. beginning. You know the order of service, and they're going to shout out the songs and the scriptures. And it's almost like we don't even need one of those. But he's always argued that we do not need a program. And mostly people say, what am I supposed to draw on? <laughs> so perhaps I thought maybe we can just draw, hand out, you know, sketch pads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, huh. Okay, hey, oh, I don't want to alarm anyone. I don't want to scare anyone, but I hope that you will begin to be prepared for the house of Halloween. That's right. Halloween is on, on Sunday this year, and so we've decided to toss out our God and our regular worship service, and we're going to have a uh, house of Halloween out in the lawn. We're going to have uh, some stories, uh, ghost stories, and we're going to have all kinds of uh, treats, right? Yeah. Treats, yeah. great music. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. Bring all your friends and... Uh, their children. I mean, ask their parents first before you do. But um, and uh, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a great time. And wear costumes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. Yeah. I was forgetting something. Wear costumes. I mean, you don't have to, but yeah. yeah. If it's fun for you. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> hey, what a great week last week! What a wonderful feast oh, of Joan. Nice. I just want to thank everyone. The band was amazing. You mm-hmm. sounded great. We had so much help setting up. Thanks, everyone, who contributed to that. Uh, it was a great feast. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, it was fantastic. And Math Arthur was really great. Oh, and yeah. I bet if people um, would like to still buy his CDs, how could they do that? Online at Matt Arthur's website. Yeah. And then he plays every Monday night at the 331 Club as well. So people yeah. could stop by there. That's great. All right. All right. We, have a, we have a guest announcer. We do have a guest announcer. Uh, Neil? As we like to call him, good old Neil. Uh, been around for uh, since the beginning. He uh, does so much. He is the, I don't know if you know this, he is the secretary uh, on the board of House of Mercy. Has been for a very long time. Um, yep. And uh, so, but he, uh, he does much more. And here to tell us about what that is, here's Neil. Well, I'm going to tell you about uh, the Altar Guild. It's the ancient order of the Altar Guild, a very secret society that's been around for centuries. And we are seeking more, um, it's not like Rush Week at a frat, but we're seeking more uh, members to help us out. Ideally, Altar Guild, in uh, the times of not pandemic, we make coffee. We make the coffee beforehand, help set up the church if we get here early enough, if John doesn't beat us to it. Um, and currently, the biggest job is getting communion together. And then after service, uh, organize things, take things down, um, clean things up. Not a huge commitment, but you get to see how the mercy is made. You get the inside look. You get to hear 45 minutes early if you're making coffee, half hour if you're doing the communion. You get to hear the band warm up and practice and get yeah. a little extra more churchiness in, uh, see what the pastors are up to. It's really a nice way to get yourself into the service. So if you're interested in possibly volunteering and becoming part of 
the Ancient Order of the Altar Guild. See Carrie Khalil, she is the coordinator in the yeah. beautiful red and white blouse there. Yeah. Uh, and she'd be happy to add your name to the list and we can uh, share in the mercy. By the way, this is the House of Mercy and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, after the year and a half we've all been through, it's so easy to move through our days with a sort of defensive posture. We pray that here we could stop, that we could pause, and know that this is a safe place to enter into your presence and the presence of this community of mercy and to simply be. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you all. Let's somehow share a sign of peace with one another. To the boat, get into the boat, and go across the waters, go across the water. There's gonna be storms, hold on, hold on, before you reach the other side, nothing. You gotta get into the boat, get into the boat, and go across the waters, go across the waters. There's gonna be storms, hold on, hold on, but you're not gonna die. You gotta get into the boat.
in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer with Lord in your mercy, and I invite you to respond, hear our prayer. God of mercy, lead us to live this life and to do whatever is done in a spirit of thanksgiving. Lead us to abandon attempts to achieve security. They're futile. To give up the search for wealth, it is demeaning. And to quit the search for salvation, it is selfish. That we might come to a comfortable rest in the certainty that those of us who participate in this life with an attitude of thanksgiving will receive its full promise. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, every day can quickly turn into a barrage of tragedy or outrage as we wade into and onto our social media platforms. Remind us to keep our minds open and our hearts supple that we could proceed to every encounter with a sense of curiosity and empathy. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, we've hurt people in our lives this week, people who we know deeply and people who've passed through our lives. We've hurt them with the things that we've done, what we've said. We confess these acts and we confess that we have not loved you with all that we have. We know that you judge us with your grace. And for that, we are grateful. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, remind us of the great value of silence. That each day in this upcoming week, to set aside time for silence in our, in our prayers and meditations, a time in which we neither speak nor listen, but simply are. Meet us here now in this time of extended silence. Amen.
Tonight's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked him rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. The word of the Lord. Our arteries start out tender and wide open, and blood flows through them easily, but it's, it's just an almost inevitable thing that over time they get harder. It's definitely worse for some people more than others, and doctors will tell you you can control it by exercising and not eating french fries, etc. But like most things, it's really not entirely in your control. Like it's not your fault. A lot of it's in the genes. It's in family history. This isn't my area of expertise, obviously, and I'm glad that there's no doctors here tonight. But since these arteries wrap around our hearts, sort of it seems true to me to say our hearts actually, like, physically get harder over time. And I mean, I doubt Jesus was talking about coronary artery disease when he says it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote this commandment. He's talking more about our souls or something, right? Our feelings, the seat of our compassion. But somehow it doesn't seem entirely different to me. I mean, like, about the inevitability or near inevitability of the organ of life and love, the seed of compassion hardening over time. Little babies, they're super soft. And in every way, their, their hearts aren't hard at all, not their arteries, not their souls, not their feelings or skin. You know, they're just soft. They, I mean, they cry about everything. They're such babies. And growing and surviving will mean toughening up a little. At first, maybe every time they cry, their mom or dad picks them up and holds them and tells them how much they're loved and rocks them and feeds them and does almost anything to soothe them. But eventually, 
There comes a time when somebody doesn't come when they cry. It might just be that the parent's trying to take a shower or make dinner. I mean, there are other things in life that have to be attended to, obviously. Or I mean, more tragically, the parent's killed by a drone or dies in an earthquake or there's simply not enough food to feed the baby, but whether we're privileged people or we're living under tragic conditions, it seems like growing up is sort of like learning slowly and humanely or terribly quickly and tragically that at some level, even at most levels, you have to learn to take care of yourself. People are separate. You have your separate selves. They aren't part of you. They aren't there to nurture you every minute. You're not one flesh with any other. You have your own skin and you have to save your own skin. Get thicker skin. Harden your heart. I don't think children have pure hearts or anything, but I do think they have soft hearts, open hearts, that they have to close a little to survive in the world. Like when you start getting hurt by people or things. I was watching Sig, my neighbor's one-year-old this weekend. It was just like so lovely to just see him light up. He got so gleeful when my cat started coming down the stairs. And she's so soft and furry. And Sig was just squealing with delight as he ran up to embrace her. And before I could get to him, the cat scratched Sig. Sig was shocked that this little creature he wanted so badly to get close to hurt him, devastated. And I was like, Better get used to that, little buddy. <laughs> it's not just going to be cats, Sig. A lot of people are going to hurt you, even your mom and dad and your brother. I mean, I didn't really say that to him. And maybe hardening our hearts sounds too disparaging or something. Maybe it's just that we have to strengthen them. I was with my, my brother a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about one of his very first memories, and it was about uh, making May Day baskets in preschool or kindergarten out of construction paper and pipe cleaners, and he, he drew flowers on them with crayons, and he put violets and Hershey kisses in them, and he was so excited, he said, to hang one on the door of our house and have my mom discover it. But he couldn't wait for someone to just discover it, so he rang the doorbell and then he ran. And my dad was the one who came to the door. And he saw Andy running, and he yelled at him for ringing and running. He thought Andy was trying to pull some prank, and never even noticed the Mayday basket. My dad wasn't a terrible, abusive father. He was just probably busy fixing something or paying bills. But my brother was thinking that maybe he remembered this so well because it's one of the first conscious times his heart was broken. Having your heart broken isn't something that quits happening once you grow up. Obviously, it seems like you just keep encountering things throughout life that in order to function, you have to harden your heart to. People you like don't like you back. People break up with you. People die. The pain of the wide world, so much of it, you have to close it off a little. I pass the people at the exit ramp from 94 to Snelling very frequently, holding up their signs about being vets or single moms or disabled. I don't even look at them. I actually don't 
feel much of anything in my heart at all. I think they're trying to get money, probably for alcohol or drugs, and I don't think it'll help them if I give them my money. I wasn't always like that. I've said to Jim lately, I mean, I put it this way, I said, I'm going to have to harden my heart if I want to get through the night without waking in the middle of it in total angst about my mom, imagining what it's like to be in her skin without the capacity to remember anything. I can't keep remembering her curled up in her bed crying because she just wants to go home and where's her mom and why did they leave her here even though she's lying in the same bed she shared with her husband for 65 years. I just, I can't keep feeling all that sadness. In the passage Scott read, Jesus goes back to a story in Genesis that seems, when I think about this, like a true story of human existence. The humans start out in the garden, naked and unashamed, together in this sort of unfathomably united, unguarded way, so open that they're one flesh. But that state doesn't last long. They eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they leave this garden of blissful union. They become ashamed of being naked, feel the need to have something to cover themselves with, some sort of protective layer. The Pharisees asked Jesus this pretty straightforward legal question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answers by like reciting primeval poetry about when God first created the world. The Pharisees probably don't really care that much what Jesus thinks about divorce. They suspect he doesn't approve of it because John the Baptist didn't, and that's, it was John the Baptist's stance on divorce that gets Herod to kill him, and they wouldn't mind if that happened to Jesus. They ask him this legal question to trap him, like hoping to get him in trouble. It's a strategy they often use. They aren't struggling in their souls. They aren't coming to him in pain or need. They, they aren't like personally involved with the question. And it's like that's what Jesus sees and responds to, like sees right through them. He sees their hearts, which are a little bit hard. He answers their question with a question. What did Moses command? They say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. But Jesus takes the whole thing to a different realm, to the realm of hearts, not legalities, creation, not certificates, flesh. He goes back to this primordial story where God creates life, creates humans out of love for love. The story where humans were not separated or hardened where there wasn't a boundary between them, really. It's not really a very practical answer in some ways. They're asking about rules. He refers to primeval poetry about two becoming one. The Pharisees say Moses said a man can write a certificate of divorce. He can put his wife away like, like it's something objective, practical, or bureaucratic. 
No, what Moses commanded, the law was meant to lead to love, not bureaucracy. The law was supposed to help make the beloved community possible. Jesus isn't making a new rule here that would lead to not love, to excluding people because they didn't follow it, cutting divorced people out of the community. Though, unfortunately, that's what the church has done with this passage too often. When Jesus says if you get divorced and marry another, you commit adultery, he's not like ramping up the rules to enforce this stricter legalism. He's talking about hearts and pain and love. He goes back to the old story where God creates the possibility of union between human beings, where these first two humans encounter each other, look at each other and say, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and they're naked together, and they're not ashamed. There's nothing between them separating them, no irritation, no envy or rivalry or jealousy or judgment or critique. The Pharisees ask if Jesus believes a man can set a woman aside like an object, like a piece of property. He makes it clear that this way of thinking is like ripping apart the basis of God's creation. Lawful? What was the law about? It was about love. How to live as human beings together and take care of each other in the midst of complicated arrays of human needs and desires. I'm pretty sure if the person coming to Jesus asking about divorce was someone desperate and broken because their spouse hurt them, Jesus would have answered differently here. But the Pharisees aren't asking the question from a place of tender brokenness. They ask, can a man put aside his wife? And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? You don't own and discard people. God created humans in relationship for love. That's what the whole female-male thing was about, not about setting rules to force some binary gender system onto humanity forever, but, I mean, not to enforce patriarchy, but about God making humans that need each other. And the law was about how attentive we need to be to the intricacies of need, how utterly interdependent people might learn to live together about caring for those who can't care for themselves. The Gospels say that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He embodies it. Unlike us, God's heart is infinitely tender. And Jesus doesn't harden his heart. It's like he has this eternally open heart. He wouldn't pass the homeless guy on the Snelling ramp. Jesus' non-stop, non-hard-heartedness. He cares for the meek and the weak and the broken, for those who can't walk or see. When someone who is sick asks for help, he heals them. When someone comes up to him and says, my daughter is dying, he helps him. And he, he never even charges for health care. Jesus says God's eye is on the sparrow, even. It's a little over the top. I mean, how would anybody ever get on with anything? Going to school, getting a job. If you cared so much about the broken and the hungry and the sparrow, they're everywhere. 
The world we've built requires, requires certain things to function, requires a lot from us, really. We have to make money, we have to withstand people's judgments, we have to prove ourselves worthy over and over again, we have to face rejection, sometimes scorn and hatred. We have to toughen up to do all that. The kingdom God created, the kingdom of God, is different than that world that we've built. A lot different. There's another way of being that God calls us toward where we could trust we are entirely loved, judged by mercy, free to love without protective armor. And I don't really know, but I think that way of being is almost unimaginable to us. Our hearts harden because we get hurt. We feel threatened. We need love, and we get irritation or nothing or rejection. And eventually we learn that instead of letting that break our heart, or instead of letting something like that make us feel bad about ourselves, we can turn it into feeling bad about other people. We do it for self-protection, and it, and it works great. But God wants to give us a heart like God's heart. Give us God's love. It's no wonder we reject it sometimes. It's the opposite of being impenetrable. Sometimes people think the part about Jesus blessing the little children is sort of tacked onto this pericope, a little irrelevant to the pressing question of divorce. But it seems to me that that part is like the summation of the whole thing. The children are the contrast to the hard-hearted Pharisees. They're the most vulnerable humans. They can't hide their need or their interdependence. And they can be just gleeful about the prospect of embrace. Jesus takes the most vulnerable human into his arms and says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Is that like receive it open-hearted with a capacity to trust that has not been hardened, naked and unashamed? Probably half the time we don't even want to enter that kingdom because there's something about it that's too disarming and we're afraid to put down our arms. Regardless of how your heart got hard, like your arteries, is it DNA or your parents or the circumstances of your life or your personality, I don't think God means for us to get stuck there, blaming ourselves or our parents or our genes. God just wants us to be free, to move to a place where we can be healed and softened and opened up, loved, thoroughly, deeply, nakedly, and where we can be free to love. Unlike us, God's heart is infinitely tender, from everlasting to everlasting, steadfast love that endures forever. Maybe God never hardens God's heart because God is not afraid. Knows that in the infinite stretch of everlasting love, the ark does bend toward justice. That all will be well. Love wins. God has no need to harden God's heart against anyone or anything. 
because God will unfold it all eventually in God's loving embrace, everything. I think if we trusted that, we wouldn't need to harden our hearts quite so much. And that would create a lot more love. You've been listening to the House of Mercy podcast. You can experience all this live every Sunday at 5. Check out www.houseofmercy.org for all the details. House of Mercy is a church in St. Paul. You should come. It's not that bad. 